This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge with you once again. I sometimes think that if I could be granted three wishes, one of them would be to be able to speak more than one language. Like a lot of native English-speaking Australians, I can muddle along very badly in one or two other languages. But when it comes to serious stuff like reading literature or the news or talking on the phone or watching movies, it is English only for me. And I have huge admiration and, I guess, envy, if I'm honest, for anyone who inhabits more than one language world, like today's guest. My name is Helen Lowe. I am an academic philosopher and researcher based at Deakin University and I'm based in Nam on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Another thing about Helen Lowe that's relevant to our discussion today is that she is mother to three children who she's raising bilingually. And she's written about that experience in a forthcoming paper that I had the great pleasure of reading recently. It's titled Her Mother's Tongue, and it takes up the idea of language as a home, which has been a very common motif in the philosophy of language, and looks at some of the ways in which it's possible to be not quite at home in language. I caught up with Helen No this week, and this is our conversation. I think this is one of those conversations where we need to start with a brief definition of terms. We're going to be talking about things like uh, heritage language and being a heritage speaker. What does that mean exactly? A heritage speaker usually refers to a speaker of a minority language and a speaker who has sort of acquired that language through a home or familial context. So an example of this might be when migrant parents are passing on a language and and their cultural language to a child um, in a country where that is a minority language. So it's not, um, they're not in a social environment where that language is supported. Right. So you learn the heritage language at home, as it were. Essentially at home, in the community, depending where you are, if there is much of a language community around you. Um, So it tends to, but is not always a language that is orally, orally picked up. And it's sort of in that environment might, depending on what language it is, it might, you might not be formally educated in its, its grammar, its syntax and its written form. And so we distinguish the heritage language uh, from the mother tongue, or, or do we distinguish the heritage language from the mother tongue? Are they always different things? And what, what do we mean by mother tongue? It's a very interesting question. I think sometimes you'll see the term heritage speaker sort of stand in for the mother tongue. So I guess to define that first, the mother tongue is a, is a term that is generally used to designate one's first language and, as the term itself already suggests, a kind of parent language. It suggests sort of original language. But I guess it's always so much more complicated than that. The first languages that we learn as um, as children might not be the languages that stay with us. And even if they are languages that stay with us, they might not be languages that are our dominant languages as we become older and in our professional lives, for example. So the mother tongue can be a really broad term and it also, I think, carries along with it some fairly heteronormative associations as well. So in relation to heritage speaker, I guess heritage speaker is trying to home in on the experience of the mother tongue or a primary language, but where it is a more specific experience tied up typically with the experiences of migration and diaspora, although heritage speaker can also refer to First Nation Indigenous languages as well. And whereas mother tongue might be right refer to somebody who who speaks this as if their primary language and continues to a heritage speaker 
tends to suggest that there can be limitations to the language development because, precisely because they have picked up that language in a social environment that is, uh, doesn't support that language. Okay, so that's laid some really good groundwork. We're going to be talking about bilingual parenting. Can you tell me about that? I mean, you're currently engaged in a project of bilingual parenting. Um, which language, apart from English, are you speaking at home with your kids? Yeah, so I speak Cantonese with them, although that, in a sense, was not my first language. Cantonese, of course, being a branch of Chinese, and it's um, there is a bit of controversy as to how we understand the different branches of um, Chinese languages, if they're branches, languages or dialects. But that's what I speak with my children. My own linguistic background involves Cantonese, Hokkien. I also speak a bit of Mandarin, but Vietnamese through my parents. So it's a bit of a, a mishmash, which I think is not uncommon for migrant and diasporic communities. But Cantonese is not your mother tongue. What, what, what's your own history with Cantonese and why is that the language that you're using at home with your kids? It's the language that I probably identify most closely as my familial language. So while it's not um, my mother tongue in the sense of my first language, it's the language that I probably grew up with most. At some point, um, my parents are from Vietnam, so they spoke they do speak Vietnamese and they um, they speak it with each other and, and in sort of in and among the community. But with us, we ended up, we spoke Hokkien to begin with and then um, my parents are refugees when they arrived in Australia. The family and the communities around them were speaking more Cantonese, though a lot of these families were Chinese, um, Chinese Vietnamese refugees. And so they adapted and that was the tongue that they sort of decided to parent us in and that became the dominant familial one. So I guess that's the one that... I've taken on more and probably feel more comfortable in. Yeah, that's so interesting because I guess swirling around all this this family history of yours is a notion of home or certain notions of home and, you know, where one comes from, where one lands, where one belongs. There's a very interesting and prevalent metaphor at work in the philosophy of language that posits language as a kind of home or, or dwelling place. Let's talk about that. Where do we find that metaphor being used? I mean, which philosophers in particular have drawn on it? Yeah, so there are there are several philosophers who have invoked the the motif of home in thinking about language. I suppose the first one who comes to mind is is Martin Heidegger, uh, a German phenomenologist who sort of famously says, um, "Language is the house of being. Um, in its home, man dwells." That's a quote from um, I think his letter of. Um, on humanism. And I, I guess what he is getting at there is he is trying to give an account of language whereby we understand it more than a means of communication or transaction, which can be a very dominant way of understanding language. Um, he wants to say that language is a fundamental site of dwelling and for him that is therefore connected with being. And he arrives there, I guess, through this metaphor and this motif of um of home, but I think in his conception of language, what he's trying to say is that he language has a kind of world-revealing quality. It's not just you know a tools of uh, uh, sorry a means of communication, but it, language in itself gives us a world. It's the means through which we can have a world. Things come into being through language. So he's sort of one important figure to encounter, I guess, when we're thinking about language through this framework of home. Another one that sort of stuck out to me was Hannah Arendt, whose work was at times in conversation with Heidegger. Um, but she gives an interesting interview in the mid-60s, about some 20 years after she's arrived in America, um, where she is in exile. And in there, she 
talks about language and in particular the mother tongue because Heidegger's account is about language in general, language as such and not in its sort of particularity. But Arendt in her interview with Gunter Gauss gives a really interesting account of language where she describes the mother tongue as something that's irreplaceable. There's no substitute for it and it's always there. It remains is her phrase. Um, And this is despite the horrors that were committed, the atrocities that were committed through language and were facilitated by language in the Holocaust. In fact, she re- she responds, you know, it wasn't the German language that went crazy. That relationship for her remains very much intact, even though um, this is 20 years after she's arrived in the States and she's learned a different language, she's working in a different language, she's doing philosophical work and writing in English. Um, but for her, that really intimate relationship with German is something that remains. Right. So we're talking about I think originary was the word you used there because there's a there's a popular or, or sort of reflexive idea of language which says you know you have a thought and then you take that thought you drop it into a little wagon which is language and you sort of send it out into the world whereas this is more an idea of language as as something that it's like language speaks us into existence if you like that's right and and Heidegger says you know he famously says language speaks um in my poorly pronounced German, it's die Sprache spricht, which means um, language speaks, and the verb for speaks is sprechen. Um, so he's playing on that. Language is the entity, it's the being, it's the force that speaks. It's not, and that's the sort of inversion of how we like to, or how we generally think about language. You know, someone asks you how many languages do you speak or what languages do you speak, and our grammatical construction, I think, is revealing. We say, I speak English. The I is the active entity who does this thing called language and and there's a, an inversion of that in Heidegger it's language that does the speaking language that does the the revealing um and we see echoes that, of that in other philosophers as well um Merleau-Ponty also I think to pick up on this idea of the thought and the language as being separated Merleau-Ponty famously says that um I can't get the the sort of the locution right, but he says that speech accomplishes thought. It's not this separate two-step move, but that thought is sort of embodied through speech. And I get and and Merleau-Ponty is another example of another figure who who paints language in these very sort of active um, terms as having its own. In fact, he says it has um, it's more of a being than a, than a means. It has its own sort of force. But as you say, I mean, these philosophical ideas about language are ideas pertaining to a kind of capital L language, you know, language in a general sense, whereas the phenomenon of inhabiting a language, a particular language, sort of complicates this notion of language as a dwelling. What kinds of questions come up then when when we consider language in a more specific sense? Yeah, so I am quite interested in the experience of inhabiting language and particularly where one inhabits multiple languages. And this is something that I think doesn't um, get taken up or treated by philosophical accounts um, in a sustained way. So to look at the example of or the experience of people who are bilingual or multilingual, but specifically in this sort of diasporic context. So to think about the experience of language as heritage speakers, I think reveals a very different kind of relationship to language, which brings up various questions that are not adequately treated within the framework of language as dwelling. Because to speak multiple languages and to speak it in the situation of a diasporic community is to inhabit languages in a different way and in a way that's not necessarily as smooth and world revealing and 
that perhaps has the sort of intimacy that is often attributed to it. Right, because living as part of a diaspora community means that you can inhabit a language sort of imperfectly. You can lose a language. You can not feel at home within a language or within several languages. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is reflective of the diasporic condition more generally. There are ways in which um, one can feel that sense of unhomeliness within a culture more generally. But it's an interesting one that I think is sort of laced with tension. On the one hand, in that environment, you might experience language and your and the the mother tongue i'm sort of using parentheses around that term um but the quote unquote mother tongue it might be one that's a very familial language precisely because it's the language that you learn in the familial context the one that is associated with the home and with community so there might be something very um familiar and intimate on an affective level with the language and yet at the same time i think there can be a certain kind of alienation that diasporic speakers, heritage speakers can feel in relation to their language, precisely because their language might not be as developed because it's not supported by a social environment, but I think also because of the racial dynamics that inform and frame our use of language and the way that can colour one's experience of language as well. Yeah, tell me more about that racial dynamic because I think that's really interesting, you know, in a, in a sort of settler colonial society like Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a long history of racism that is sort of unfolded um, in tandem with or through the policing of language um, in what is now Australia used to be home to some 250 uh, First Nations languages. And we're down to, I think, dozens that are that are still alive. But as I understand it, even among the First Nations languages that are spoken now, there, there are some that are there are only, I think, a very few number that have native speakers, um, meaning sorry, like fluent speakers, and even they are endangered. So I, there's that sort of history and which some have described as a, effectively a linguicide in this country. Alongside that, we have also had the white Australia policy um, where there was a concerted effort to police or to sort of mark whose bodies were allowed entry into the country and not through the use of language tests. And those examples really point to the way in which foreign languages, quote unquote foreign languages, are very much regulated and against the sort of the ideal European and specifically English languages, that dominant language. And language is sort of a site where that sort of racialization has occurred. It's sort of one of the tools in which um, racist ideas of which languages are more valuable, which languages are not worth, um, don't have any sort of inherent worth. That's a site where I think some of those racist ideas can play out. Yeah, it speaks to that situation in Australia where people are often suspicious of immigrants who won't assimilate, you know, quote unquote. And a marker of that supposed refusal is is speech, you know, the, the speaking of a language in public that isn't English. And I guess that creates a very ambivalent relationship to the, the mother tongue in, in that sense. You know, rather than offering a home or a place of nurturing, the mother tongue can actually be a site of danger in that it can expose you to racial abuse and or worse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think most people who speak languages other than English, who have grown up speaking languages other than English in this country, can reel off examples where they have been policed in public and have been told not to speak English or I'd suspiciously or I was at a conference on the weekend where um, some educational researchers were interviewing 
students in primary schools now who were giving examples of, of teachers getting kids to do 20 push-ups when they speak a language other than English. So there's very much, you know, only English in the classroom, only English in public. And that has a very profound effect on how one feels in language and how you have to circumscribe your uh, your linguistic life to certain domains. But it also it contains sort of messaging about what, what languages are okay to speak and who you are able to be in the public domain, right? If language is sort of, it sort of can be a home for a sense of self, then it's saying something about, well, who, who can you be in public space? This is David Rutledge. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone and a conversation about language, often conceptualised in philosophy as a kind of home or dwelling place, which sounds all very cosy, but as with a lot of homes, life inside language can be complicated, especially when you're inhabiting more than one language. My guest is Helen No, a philosopher and researcher at Deakin University in Melbourne. You've also written about how the lived experience of bilingualism and the loss of language demands a kind of labour. And, uh, of course, at the community level, this labour can take the form of things like language revitalization projects. But then there's also a more personal kind of labour, particularly encountered through the efforts of bilingual parenting. Tell us about that labour. What, what does it involve? Yeah, so as you mentioned, there are so many different registers of labour that can be involved in language maintenance and revitalization. I guess in my more recent work where I've been thinking about bilingual parenting um, and thinking about the very micro bodily sort of senses in which the labour of language needs to take place, I think that there's a really sort of adjustment to your linguistic world. There's a really strong tradition of um, Latinx feminist theorists and philosophers who have discussed this in the context uh, or through themes of travelling or sort of world travelling or being in between and that sense of sort of constantly travelling between worlds, translating between them, making yourself intelligible, kind of contorting yourself so that you're, you're presentable in this world or another. Bilingual parenting involves some version of that. I think there's that kind of constant translation and um, that moving between worlds. Um, and I think it's important to sort of situate that in, in sort of the broad social context. Um, you know, the, the tide of English in Australia is so strong from early learning years to above. Um, people who I speak to who are bilingual parenting always, always talk about the setbacks that they experience once their child starts childcare or, you know, starts to consume media and whatnot. So there's sort of this constant tide that one is running against. So bilingual parenting against that or in the midst of that will always involve seeking out resources, books, songs, videos, communities um, to give your child a rich social environment whereby that language has meaning, um, that constant sense of repetition, reframing, re-questioning. Um, you know, there's uh, among people who sort of are engaged in this, it's very common for children to want to reply in English and depending on, on one's approach, you know, there's the very sort of endless stream of, of repetition and and to kind of bring that language alive when it's kind of getting pushed aside. It's also gendered work, as you've pointed out. In what ways? How is it gendered? Um, yeah, look, it's a, it's a bigger question that pertains to sort of more than bilingual parenting and I think just parenting as such, but I think language is also one site where we see this. 
language, I guess, is sort of traditionally associated as um, it's gendered as the feminine. And that's interesting to think about even, um, you know, terms for language. So in French, language is la langue. It's coded feminine. Um, the mother tongue is very obviously a feminine coded. And we tend to associate language and socialization as sort of woman's domain traditionally, and whereas law giving and authority is sort of man's domain. So that's sort of the background, I guess, at play. But I think in practice, you also see this at work. And I came across a study that was really interesting to me. It was a study that looked at um, bilingual parenting and the division of labor and the gender division of labor. Um, but what was striking was that this study had noted that even in cases where it, in an interracial context where it was the father who spoke a language other than English, it was still the mother who kind of took on the role of actively encouraging the bilingual parents or their families to be speaking in language, um, to seek out resources, to seek out playgroups, to seek out communities. It was still the, the English-speaking mothers who was taking on, upon that work, whereas the interviews that this author engaged in sort of noted that the framing or the father's understandings of their role was to support the mother's decision in language learning. And we're obviously talking about heterosexual couplings here. But that was striking to me as how gender dynamics can play into these ideas of whose role it is to sort of impart language and to teach language. And I think that ties into and um, it fits into a broader picture around cultural maintenance and kin work as well, which a lot of feminist theorists have talked about as the holiday season approaches as a, um, a, an article that the title stands out because it's, you know, holiday, it's called holiday cards and something like that, the, how um, that, that work of maintaining kinship relations, organising family get-togethers and celebrations and whatnot, that sort of cultural level of work, which language is a part of, that has historically been coded and has been taken on by women. You also write about the um, Bengali-British writer Sheila Banerjee and her account of how bilingual parenting can introduce a, a kind of isolation into the intimacy of the family setting, which I think is really interesting. What's she talking about there? And is this something that you've experienced? Yeah, absolutely. That piece really um, resonated with me and I know others who are parenting bilingually. So to give some context, her um, background, she speaks Bengali, but she's parenting uh, and she had been parenting in Bengali um, in a mixed race family and her partner does not speak that, her partner speaks English. And so it's a very common scenario where, you know, there's a sort of linguistic approach among bilingual parenting where it's the one parent, one language approach. So one parent the, and the parent who is bilingual speaks in that language and sort of keeps at it no matter what the responses are and whatnot. And she she just gives examples of being at the family table and at dinner time and asking, you know, the everyday chatter that happens between parent and child around the family table and how that's so disjointed for her and her family. Um, you know, she's speaking in Bengali, her, her child is replying in English, and yet because she's, she's having to do the work of sort of navigating and travelling between those language worlds, it, what happens is there's often this mix-up. So she gives the example of, you know, she replies and it comes out as this, you know, the equivalent of now not eat toast later hunger will do, something like that, right? So this kind of mishmash where her brain is kind of flitting between these different languages and their grammatical structures. And it's a really, I think, revealing, interesting phenomenon and absolutely one that resonates um, with me. Your tongue, I, I suppose it's the phenomenon of being tongue-tied, but I think it speaks to something deeper about the kind of 
traveling, if you like, that's one way to describe it, or the negotiating between language worlds that happens really instantaneously and beneath surface level. So we're talking about all this in, well, not necessarily in a sort of a negative framework, but we've been talking a lot about about um, alienation and, and loss and challenge, but it's not, it doesn't all come down to that, does it? Because you've written about how bilingual parenting can also serve as a process of reclamation and, and regeneration. Of what exactly? I guess it's in the context of this more fraught experience of language where one perhaps has grown up with the language with the mother tongue that's kind of laced with ambivalence because you might not have felt comfortable speaking it, you might not feel comfortable, um, you've learned to internalise a sense of shame around that language or a sense of unease probably is a better way to describe it around language. Against that context, I think projects like bilingual parenting, I think you could say similar things about language revitalization programs. I think throw things into a different light, not just because they are obviously actively trying to maintain and sustain languages, but I think there's a sort of new opening there. You sort of have to then learn to inhabit language in a different way to take on that that sort of metaphor of home again. Um, you know, to parent bilingually means you kind of have to take on that language. You have to, like, inhabit its persona um, in order to be able to teach it, right, um, to be able to pass on that language. And I think in doing that, you sort of find it's not just the child who is learning a new language, it's sort of or who is learning the language. It's the parent has to figure out a new way to be in this language. And it might be a different way. It might be a different relation to the language that you had growing up. I think that's a real generative moment in the experience. You've written how it's more than just the intergenerational transmission of a language of a language from sort of parent down to child. There's a movement back upward as well. And how has that been for you? I mean, can you can you give us an example of how bilingual parenting has enriched your language world in this way? Yeah, I think it has in many ways. I so, you know, bilingual parenting has required me if I want to parent the way that I want to parent Oftentimes there are phrases, there are words that I won't know because perhaps I wasn't parented in that way. So it requires a seeking out. And so there's a sort of expansion of my linguistic world. Oh, so maybe there is a way to kind of um, be very encouraging to children or, or positive and that sort of like to express to certain register of language that maybe I wasn't aware of previously. Um, and in that process also reconfigures your relationships in language because not only is there a sort of, you know, there's a kind of revitalization of the language in you, but I think as your vernacular starts to shift as well, um, I think the relationships around you can shift your social interactions even, sort of being, you know, parenting, bilingually being out in the world and speaking to your children in your mother tongue means that different interactions open up to you that they might not have. Um, I think there are all these different sort of moments of opening and it's intergenerational and it's it's very much not... I, I just want to push against this idea of, you know, it being a kind of language transmission, that it's something that's handed down. I mean, language, for one, being such a living thing is not just something that's sort of handed down, but I think it can travel, it can precisely can travel back the other way. It can change the parents' linguistic world as well. I think there's a really nice metaphor here when we think about the birth of the child, um, especially the birth of the, ch- the first child, um, oftentimes being described as not just the birth of a child, but also the birth of the mother. And I think there's something really beautiful in that and 
that also resonates in the case of language. Um, there are people I know of who never really spoke their sort of heritage language, but upon having children have made an effort to. And there's a kind of birth of a linguistic life there that perhaps was dormant. Well, a lot more to talk about there, but we'll wind this one up for now. Helen, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been great to talk. Thanks very much, David. It's been my pleasure. And Helen No is a philosopher and researcher at Deakin University in Melbourne. Her forthcoming paper is titled Her Mother's Tongue, Bilingual Dwelling, Being in Between and the Intergenerational Co-Creation of Language Worlds. As always, you can find this and all of our past programs via the ABC Listen app. This is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and it's been great to have you company this week. I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.